Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Okay, I'm not even going to dilly-dally with some long-winded intro because I have been waiting weeks for this interview with Dr. Atlas to go live for you all to be introduced to her if you haven't already. Although if you're a part of my audience or you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I've been talking about her new book, Emotional Inheritance, literally all year. (laughs) It's a new all-time favorite book for sure. The topic of intergenerational trauma is something that is so fascinating to me and it's very I think it's very new to the general population although Dr. Atlas mentions that in the world of psychotherapy it's actually something that's been around for many many years. This may be one of the first interviews where I honestly felt like I was fangirling a little bit because I loved Dr. Atlas's book so much I could not wait to talk about this topic and she was honestly such a joy and a pleasure to be able to sit and talk with for an hour and I'm always so, so grateful when others are willing to share a piece of their time with me and with all of you through these interviews. The topic of intergenerational trauma is something that comes up a lot in my practice when working with clients through Evox therapy. And I have seen addressing generational trauma to be profoundly impactful for many of my clients, which is why it's something I'm so excited to be able to share with all of you through this interview. But I'm also so excited that there are now more resources on this topic for the general public, like Dr. Atlas's book, Emotional Inheritance, which I'll be sure to link in the show notes. Another favorite, favorite book of mine when it comes to this topic is It Didn't Start With You by Mark Woolen, another book on generational trauma to check out. As far as I know, these are the only two, these are the only two books on this topic that I have come across. Now there may be more, and if there are and you've read them or you've heard of them, please send me a DM on Instagram or a message in some way, because I would love to hear about it so that I can pick it up and read through them. So with that, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Galit Atlas. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Dr. Atlas, welcome to the Crescent Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I told you off air that I have truly been looking forward to this interview for several weeks now because your book was so profound and I'm so excited there's starting to be more information on Mm. generational trauma. But before we get into all of that, (laughs) just for the listener who's new to you, can you give us a little bit about your background, your practice? 
and I don't, some of the key things that got you to where you are today? So I am a psychoanalyst and I'm a faculty member at the postdoctoral program for psychotherapy and psychoanalysis uh, at NYU. And I have a private practice. And Emotional Inheritance is actually my fourth book, but it is my first book for a, a general audience. Because usually what I do is like I teach and I write um, theory for, especially for, for clinicians, but especially for psychoanalysts. And so this was my first actual book for a general public, a general reader. And the truth is that the book started with the, uh, a piece I wrote for the New York Times. I think it was in 2015. Uh, it was my first piece. And then I, I wrote a few pieces uh, for the New York Times about therapy and like short stories. Some of them I developed to a full chapter in this mm -hmm. book. So that was my first experience in, in writing for uh, a popular audience. And I, Emotional Inheritance is a book that I slowly started writing uh, in those pieces when I started talking about unconscious communication and about the intergenerational aspect of, uh, of, the, of our unconscious uh, and and based on my clinical experience, it's a very clinical book. Yes. Oh my goodness, it's fascinating for the individual who has never heard this word intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. generational trauma, emotional inheritance. Can you give us sort of in layman's terms what yeah. that means, what that entails? So the truth is that it's a very, uh, to some degree, simple idea, but. Simple and profound, right? Because this book investigates the idea in which emotions, memories, and feelings, and traumatic experiences are transmitted from one generation to the next and held in our own mind and body as, as our own, as if we experienced it, right? So what I was interested in is the link between our parents' and grandparents' history experiences and especially traumatic history and how that history becomes our own emotional struggle mm -hmm. so i have to ask because i'm i love to hear a little bit of an origin story when did intergenerational trauma first get on your radar and so you know i feel like at least in the psychoanalytic world intergenerational trauma is a, is a word or a term that we that we kind of grow up with. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a little unusual because, and I'll give you a little bit of the history, at least from a psychoanalytic perspective. I love it. Psychoanalysts started investigating the, that idea, right, that our experiences can pass down from generation to generation, and especially trauma, um, in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Uh, many of these analysts were Jews who escaped Europe, and their patients were also Holocaust survivors. And we see that in the, in the 60s, and especially in the late 60s, there were started a lot of publications about second, what they call second generation. Mm -hmm. And the first IPA, the International Psychoanalytic Association, um, uh, conference on the idea that uh, those ghosts, as I call them in the book, exists in us, uh, was in the late six, 60s. And then later oh, wow. on, in the 90s, uh, we, f we started seeing 
um, neuroscience uh, and and researches that that looks at the biology of that. And so, of course, we're what we find is that really about we think about the multiple paths in which uh, right th- that material is transmitted from generation to generation. I think mm-hmm. where what I added to the theory maybe is that emotional inheritance is is a little wider definition because it doesn't only talk about intergenerational trauma. It opens it to the understanding that everything our parents are is part of who we are, right? Mm -hmm. That every experience they had, not only what they did to us, you know, that the the most traditional understanding, right? We used to say, what did your parents do to you? Like first person experience. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. what happened to you Mm -hmm. is, and of course that is, that is true that what happened to you in your childhood is important, but here we're, we're adding to it. What happened to your parents? that not only made them who you are, but invades your own unconscious and lives inside you as if it belongs to you. And, mm-hmm. there, and the book gives many, many examples of very, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's a uh, complicated conclusion, right? That we inherit even family traumas that we were not told about. Right. Almost especially family traumas we weren't told about, yeah. it seems like. Yeah. 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 It's so profound. And I love the distinction between, of course, there's going to be what we firsthand experienced and then what was modeled to us. And maybe even in our own lifetime, what we subconsciously picked up, the unsaid. Yes. And, but also what was maybe passed on biologically, physiologically, just through the generations. And I'd love to touch on that a little bit. I don't know that that's, it's not totally, I'm not all like, it has to be proven by science Mm -hmm. or we don't believe it, you know? But I think it is interesting to hear what science is out there. Having read other books on this topic, I know there are some studies on this if you're comfortable sharing. Yes, of course. And again, you know, we are, as, as always, when it comes to mental health, and to other things, right? We're always looking at this intermingling of nature and nurture and, and trying to understand what is what. And of course, these questions about, about what is biological, what is in, uh, psychological, uh, includes also questions about, if you think about adoption, for example, uh, I get a lot of emails from, from adopted kids are saying like, don't forget us, you know, what does it mean for us? Right. Right. What do we inherit? And do we inherit both the, the yes. right, the environmental and the emotional oh, and the biological? And so first of all, let, let me hold your hand and take you into the research a little bit, which is called the research on epigenetics. And okay. the idea is that the, the epigenetic research is the, uh, examines the biological mechanism by which trauma is transmitted from generation to generation. And the impact of the environment, and when we talk about environment in psychology, of course, we talk about the psychological environment, and especially trauma, on the expression of genes, which means that there is some uh, environmental memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is a research that started in the 90s, and for now, um, the studies go back 
three generations back and maybe starting the fourth and mm-hmm. and of course we add to it because you know we don't have that many generations that we are that we can study <laughs> right right <laughs> but with with animals we see it like in worms that live four years or mice that f- that leave uh, live two years we can go many many generations back mm-hmm. and see the how or seven generations how how that they adjust to the environment uh, and how genes are, are altered in the offsprings of mm-hmm. Uh, here here we go back to Holocaust survivors, but of course, now we are looking at um, uh, in depth at um at slavery, racism, you know, all of these uh, social traumas that that live a mark r- mm-hmm. right live inside us and leave marks in our in our unconscious and in our body and mind. Yes, the thought I had was, To me, it makes a lot of sense, even without any science behind right. it, because just as mammals on this earth, we want to survive. And so if some really intense experience has happened, it makes sense that the psyche, the DNA is going to hold on to that, encode it to the next generation so that they can better survive mm-hmm. that threat should it appear to them. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. And it's exactly the way... We all think about it, and so I, I absolutely agree with you. It's all about surviving. And so if we, th- if we move back for a second to, um, to n- nurture what we call, you know, this, the, the, and I, I'll take you into the attachment idea, right? And how, because people always say, so how does it pass down, right? How, what's the mechanism of that? Uh-huh. And so <laughs> I think what we're looking at is the ways and it goes back to what you were saying about surviving if we assume and know that attachment we're we are attached to the people who raise us and we start our lives not being able to differentiate from them mm-hmm. because that's how we survive we need to pick up on every cue on every everything that they feel or do or to a to adapt and to adjust ourselves so we will be able to survive as babies and I think attachment is really the unit that helps the child survive and through the attachment we unconsciously communicate with each other and so I think what when we look at that unit the parent child unit of attachment, We understand and we look at infant research and those are the researches that I base many of my uh, writing on um, the the understanding and the the infant observation infant research of how parents and children communicate from the first minute uh, you know and those research shows yeah. us right um, babies that are were just born. And a month year old, three months uh, you know, three months old, uh, nine month old, they have um, they follow them to understand how those babies communicate with the parents right from the beginning. And we see how they feel them, how mm-hmm. babies know their parents from inside. And so we believe mm-hmm. really that through that, communication the babies pick up on every cue right that the parents communicates to them so I'd love to hear how bringing this 
into, you know, you said it's actually this research has been around, this knowledge of intergenerational trauma has been around much longer than I thought, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I think per usual, maybe the general population hears about things much slower. Right. <laughs> We're just not as on top of it. But the question I was going to ask is, how has bringing in this lens of intergenerational trauma when working with patients shifted the way you interact with them, shifted the way you've maybe been able to get to some of the roots of the things they're struggling with? It sounds though like it may have always been something that was part of your practice just because it's you've been aware of it so long. I've been aware of it and I think I developed it to a, to and and the field de developed it, right? Mental health is mm -hmm. and that's as you're saying, it's not just that it's moving into the general public uh, awareness, it is also something that have been developed more and my own research is really on the ways that attachment and communication and unconscious communication is uh, is something that we uh, that we live even without knowing and and again in in emotional inheritance part of what i focus on is uh, the gap the gaps and the uh, you know i call it the ghosts of the unsaid and the unspeakable understanding mm -hmm. that our parents communicate with us not only through words but in many, many other ways. And what we register is not only what was said or done, but also the ga those gaps. Mm -hmm. And so going back to your question, I think that what I added, to, what I, I'll start with what I noticed is that when I sit with a patient, I always sit with more than one generation, right? I sit with them, with their parents, with their grandparents. And, and that framework is not a framework that replaces the way we are used to think or we're, mm -hmm. or we're working. It adds another perspective. Right. That, right. And so what does that mean practically? It means that when somebody comes in, I'm interested in, it makes it more complicated in some ways, right? Because I'm interested in what, who they are, right? And yeah. what, what brings them uh, to me which is usually either symptoms of I'm not feeling well, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm right, or something that happened to them. Mm. And those are related many times, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like people come because of a breakup, people come because they want something in their lives that they can't have. They a, lot of, a lot of people come because of relationships. Something is happening in their lives or because of loss, right? So we start with what brings you here. And I think that we open the scope to who you are, which means how, you know, what is your history? How did you grow up? Who raised you, right? Yeah. And, and then the other layer is who were your parents and what happened to them? And I, mm -hmm. and I often ask about, I, I almost always used to ask, what is your, uh, do you have any traumas in your family? Do you have, uh, what can you tell me about where you, your parents came from, your grandparents and the history? Again, to integrate all of that to a, to a big picture of who that person is and what they're struggling with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of another piece to the puzzle that might fit yeah. for someone. But it makes me, I get so excited about it because I talk about friends with this and clients with this and no one has heard of this, <laughs> at least not in my circle. Yeah. And it just makes me think, 
you know, I hope there comes a day where every therapist, every psychologist is able to bring this lens in at the right point at some point, mm -hmm. because the reality is we all have some kind of intergenerational trauma, right? especially just with the amount of historic events that have happened in the last yeah. 100, 200 years, I think we all have. And I think certain groups have immensely more across the board. Yes. And so the reality is we've all inherited something. Right. And so the more that this be can become a part of the general education on emotional well-being, on doing that emotional work, I just think we're going to see leaps and bounds in the individual's healing process. And again, mm -hmm. it makes me so excited to think about. Thank you for saying that. And I think you're really right. I, I also think that uh, part of what helped us diving to it is the the that we are living these days with less denial of what happened to previous mm. generations, especially right now, right? When we're talking about the history of, of our culture and the history of other cultures and, and, and the very, very disturbing history and, mm -hmm. and related to race and gender and, uh, right? And, and thinking about climate change and, and everything that this, this planet is, uh, you know, uh, is happening to us in that way. I think what it does is that it breaks our ability, uh, uh, our ability to deny those things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also you know we we especially in western society we live with such profound illusion of separateness mm -hmm. that uh, you know this whole uh, idea of being individuals individualism and a uh, autonomy, self-sufficient, all of those, uh, especially American ideas, but I think in the Western <laughs> world, this is like, and, right? <laughs> and there is some real deny, denial of the fact that we are never fully separated from each other, uh, that we live inside each other and, we're, and that we are dependent on each other. And so this whole idea of, right, I, and I'm thinking about this capitalistic idea even, or, or patriarchal idea, that uh, we are so separated and we are so, and we need to be uh, self-sufficient and we need to be autonomous, right? uh, to have autonomy in our lives. It's, it's such a patriarchal idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> like yes. men are so, right? And, and babies and women are so dependent. And, and I think there is such denial in it of the fact that we are dependent on everything, including our, the, this, earth right mm. including this planet and if we don't take care of each each other and everything that we are yeah. dependent on then what are we left with we're yeah. left alone right and so i think yeah. that frame is really related to the the intergenerational uh, trauma because we can't separate ourselves from the people who came before us right and it's I was thinking about this so much last night as I was listening to a previous interview of yours and just thinking where along the history of humanity did we lose this ability? Because I think if you look back on many ancient cultures, mm -hmm. community was so big and actually emotional expression and like there's cultures that have mourning ceremonies. So mm -hmm. these things aren't taboo. These things aren't, 
um, yeah. frowned upon and repressed. And so it's really interesting. You know, I think it's an interesting study of the question that popped up first was, you know, after so many thousands of years on this planet, yeah. how have we humans, all that we've been through, never learned how to feel and express and process our emotions? Right. But I, I think, you know, then the next thought in my mind was, I think there are cultures who have done that. And we've either now pendulum the other way where we're totally repressing mm -hmm. or this might be more acute to American society, acute to Western society, whatever it may be. So those yeah. are sort of the the rabbit trails I was going down in my head. Yeah, I really agree with you. I think, you know, to me, some of the some of the answers are in two things that are complicated and and, you know, <laughs> thinking about the M word money and men. <laughs> uh, you know that there is something about and the relationship between them right and, I'm not, and again i'm not a, i love men but i think that they are trapped in some patriarchal world when they feel like they need to provide they need to produce and this whole idea of you know bringing uh, the, whole, the whole capitalism right and the idea that you need to be uh, you know you, don't, you shouldn't really care about other people you should care you should have self-care you should cut off toxic people from your life you should be uh, independent and and care for yourself mm -hmm. uh, for your well-being and I think this is the implication of that is that we care for our well-being and and then we de we deny yeah, right we we deny our connection to this universe and to mm -hmm. each other in ways that uh, damage all of us Right, and uh, yeah, I see yeah. you. And I think I'm sorry that I'm getting into this no. rant, but I feel like we're, we're talking about being connected and not separated, and understanding that whatever we bring into even to therapy, going back to what we're talking about, uh, is never belongs only to us. Mm -hmm. Well, in my mind, this is just how my mind works. It always goes to how did we get here, and mm -hmm. then how do we how do we get to the next place? Right. And I just think about that, you know, imagining a time where sharing your emotions isn't something that people sort of go, whoa, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Where just as a general population, someone can go, I'm having a really hard time today. Oh my gosh, I have so much grief. Yeah. This happened. And, you know, I think many people do have close relationships where they can do that somewhat. But I think in general, that free emotional expression Mm -hmm. isn't happening right. and so I do think about how can we get back there of course that's you know that's a much bigger question and that involves I think addressing so many areas of society so of course like I said it's it's a very very big thing to start looking at but it's exciting to think about that day mm -hmm. hopefully that comes of you know I, I work with clients all day long and even as I'm going through life on the street mm -hmm. interacting with new people and you see the hesitancy within them to yeah. to share these things. And for me now, it's very normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why why do we why do we hold things in? Right. Why you is know, it I, so scary? I feel like it become especially after COVID and because of that intense experience that you know there is an argument in the culture of was it traumatic was it just stressful was it like what was it what what are the implications for the next generation right but i think what we do know already is that it's shaken all of us and 
and I think the silver, the silver lining is that trauma became a word that people use mm. uh, more than they used to. That I mm. think that there is some movement towards mm. being able to talk about mental health more in the, in the popular culture. I think that's yeah. part of what you're seeing, right? That uh, it's part of the success of my book that people are really hungry for 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 books and and TV shows and and conversations about mental health about healing about trauma about about everything that uh, you know uh, damaged and hurt us but also the previous generations and I think that is really something that we see that people are much more open to and mm-hmm. and maybe that's what you're saying that we went so far that we have to come back right right, right. and we it seems as if we have to, some layers to go through like this first layer maybe we're in right now is mm. the shedding of the stigma the shedding of the silencing yeah. broadly speaking and yeah. as we shed those layers hopefully we'll be able to one-on-one more start to share these things but I've, I've taken us on a tangent <laughs> that I find so fascinating but what I'd love to ask is when you are working with a patient, what are some potential signs or flags that start to catch your eye and go, hmm, okay, there might be some intergenerational trauma at play here. Are there some specific things you've started to notice over the years that you're like, this gives, you know, this like sends off a bell in my mind? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I can think about one thing in specific, and that is guilt. Uh, I think that when it comes to intergenerational transmission of trauma, especially when it comes to trauma, we could identify a layer of survivor guilt uh, in the next uh, generation, which is pretty incredible, right? Because we, we're used to talking about, especially as mental health clinicians, right, about uh, survivor guilt in the person that actually survived a trauma that's not a concept that we are unfamiliar with right we're familiar with that concept but the idea that that survivor guilt passed down from generation to generation is one of the most uh, important things I think that I found in my Mm. work and that uh, that's one of the clues when I see somebody with uh, with real ambivalence about thriving okay that's what I was going to ask is how do you see that expressing Mm-mm. in the way they live their life? I see that, I think, very, it's usually very intense, actually. Feel, feeling of people that feel a lot of anxiety about doing well and huh. a lot of feelings that and they express uh, feelings about uh, guilt about uh, leaving their parents behind or leaving their family behind and being in a better place like if you have a parent who is unhappy or and sometimes it's even it's very nuanced because some of these parents are happy in their lives right because Mm -hmm. they are and they are a second generation and and these days I see for example people who are third generations of holocaust survivors and I think the survivor guilt is very powerful as if they were they survived themselves And again, to your question, I think the way you sense it, I would say, is in the ambivalence about 
<laughs> I'll simplify it for a second about being happy. Mm-hmm. Right? That mm-hmm. there is something. There's like some kind of resistance there. Yeah. The feeling that, you know, I don't, maybe I don't deserve it. Or when we, when we dive deep, we understand that if your uh, grandmother lost her whole family and then your mother was very, very uh, attached to, and, and your grandmother felt the guilt, right, of being the survivor. And your mother was there to, to nourish your grandmother and to, and to take care of her. And she became her caretaker because your grandmother didn't have a mother, right? And the whole the communication in the family is that we need to stick together. We need to take care of each other. And nobody is allowed to do better than the others. Because anybody who does better reminds us that we survived and some people died. Hmm. And there is a profound, profound, profound guilt around being well or even separating from the family, right? Even moving somewhere else physically or separating in the most nuanced emotional way uh, by doing something different or doing something, so to speak, better. Uh-huh. And those, those things are being communicated often not verbally or consciously. It's just this subliminal undercurrent, a sense of, oh, I can't leave. Oh, I can't be more successful. Oh, I can't be happier then. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think that's the, that's the nuanced work, right? Because, mm-hmm. the, and the complicated work is how do we listen to that? And slowly, right? We don't jump to the conclusion. We slowly start unpacking it backwards, right? Right. And understanding like, okay, Let's imagine how your grandmother felt and how your mother felt and what is it that was communicating with you in the milk you you drank, right? It's not, yeah. it's not, it, it is almost never an actual explicit, explicit verbal communication. Yeah, right. And that's where we yeah. see the the confusion, right? And what in the, in the chapter uh, on sexual abuse, I talk about confusion of tongues, how one generation communicates with the next something uh, there is a there is a more than one communication going on. One is that I don't want you to carry my trauma. I don't want to burden you with it. And the other is my trauma is yours, right? Mm-hmm. And the multi-layered communication of and I think in sexual abuse there is it's specific. It's very specific. Hmm. There's so many, so many things coming up in my mind. So, okay, before I move on to the next question, I think another thing that I was picking up from your book and even from a past interview is, I think, for example, in your own family, you had a grandmother who drowned or there was a family member? My uncle okay. drowned. And then the family all had a fear of water. Uh-huh. Is that correct? Or can you explain yes, it? Yes, yes. It's exactly that there is, a, there is a chapter. I mean, you know, I share a lot of my own uh, family trauma and my own experiences and and in the book and one chapter really uh, describes uh, my family I, I mean I come from a family with layers of trauma including poverty and racism and and loss a lot of a lot of loss and both my parents were very ill when they were young and almost died and so there is this special uh, fragility of f- feelings that the, the body is fragile and, and anxieties about around mm. the body t- as well. But my mother lost her older brother when she was 10. 
and he was 14 and he drowned uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. And that is something that I always knew, but I never knew how much it impacted me until I started investigating that idea that in fact my fear of water is related to that uh, traumatic history of my mom that was she never told me that I should be afraid of of you know of water but I see it in me and I see it in my siblings and I see it in my children and so there is that understanding that you know my brother told me the other day which after he read the book and he said you know your book made me think about something that actually I never thought about and he said you know our mother was forgotten there I, t- I tell that story too that when she she was born in Syria and when she was four years old or, or something like that they uh, they escaped Syria uh, and my and she had six siblings and when they, they escaped in the middle of the night and they forgot her at home and they had to go all the way back. I remember that. <laughs> I remember that uh, in the book. Yeah. And, and she was asleep in her bed, right? But that is a, is a mythological story in our, our family that my mother was forgotten. And they mm. left. And I mean, these days I have three kids. I understand how if you have six kids, you might forget one of them. <laughs> home if you don't count them. <laughs> and so it's like they were in a rush. And then suddenly in the middle of the day, they're like, oh, my God, where is Susan? Like, uh-huh. we go all the way back to pick uh-huh. her up. And my, f- my brother said that he figured out that he, something I didn't ever knew, that he has a fear. When he was young, he was afraid my parents will forget him at home. So he would always sleep in the living room. And that's what I remember. Like, that if they leave, they won't forget him. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, right? I didn't know that. And he just shared with me this, like, a few days ago. He said, like, that's what I thought about. And like, oh, this is why, where my fear of being forgotten came from. Because we all grew up on that, uh, right? Or that story. Yeah. yeah. And... Yeah, so so this is how it looks, right? And right. the book gives you many, many, many examples of, of that from my practice. Oh, it's so it's just you can't put it down. It's not like any other emotional wellness book I've ever read. You just mm-hmm. it's a page turner. You just keep going, keep going. But it's reminding me of you might find this really interesting. It's reminding me of a client I worked with. A mother brought her preteen daughter in. She had an immense fear of balloons, fireworks, poppers, anything that could make a loud sound mm-hmm. and and anything that resembled war. Yeah. So she was saying like those sound, you know, I'm afraid of the fireworks because they sound like bombs. I'm afraid of the balloons because they might explode. You know, that truck reminds me of a war truck. And the mom was like, she's never seen a war movie nothing has ever happened like this but it was very very intense she couldn't go to holiday things where there were fireworks if there was a party with balloons she would often need to leave because she would get so panicked and so we dove into some intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and it turns out both grandparents on both sides of the family were a part of the holocaust and all we did was really throughout the different evox sessions revisit what those grandparents might have been feeling potentially hearing bombs every single day whatever it might be almost Mm -hmm. almost acknowledging their pains and their hurts yeah and within about three sessions she was able to 
go to parties with balloons again. She was able to sit outside and watch fireworks with her family. So it's just... It's amazing, right? How that works. It works like magic. It sounds like magic sometimes. Yeah. People are like, what is that? How do, you, how do you do that? How does that work, right? And, but you see that it works like magic in that way because it is... And right, if you, if you try to, to unpack it, we could imagine that grandparents had themselves had, right? And, and growing up in places where there is war, I know that, that when you hear a bomb, I jump mm-hmm. and then my kids jump, right? And, we, and they inherit that jumping from a sound that sounds like uh, bombs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was wild because one of the things she said in one of our sessions was, you know, we're asking, why does it scare you? And something that she hadn't ever consciously realized before was, I'm afraid I'll lose everyone I love. Wow. And I was just like, this just connects so deeply to what your grandparents experienced. And I just can't help but feeling like there's some wounds demand to be healed in a way, or they demand to be looked at in a way. And until they are, they're going to keep showing up yeah. to be rectified in a sense and and sometimes that all that rectification is is just acknowledgement yeah it's people who maybe for whatever reason didn't feel like they had a voice or didn't feel like they had a safe space to share those emotions and sometimes that's all it takes and this is you know with you know with her everything was in her mind's eye it's not like she went to her grandma and was right like, please share these things because her grandparents are still living But yeah, I just, like I said, you know, there's not a science study to prove this, but I have seen it with clients that sometimes all it takes is just vocalizing certain things, acknowledging certain things, and they they start to lift. Yeah. You know, as somebody who teaches very um, many clinicians, I can tell you that I have not met one clinician who didn't you know, notice that in their practice. It is something that as clinicians, as you said, we just know. We don't even mm-hmm. need the research. We know it. Mm-hmm. This is something we, we live through with our patients. And and I think, as you said, it's it was a very good point to really know that it's not only about going to our parents and asking them. And you see that some of this, in some of the, um, this, the chapters, people go back and ask. And in some mm-hmm. of the chapters, they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there is no technique and there is no uh, way of saying, okay, now you have to go to your family and ask them what happened to them. Uh, you know, some of those things are a work of making links of things we already know. There are a lot mm-hmm. that we know and we deny or dissociate or just don't make the link because in some ways our mind will attack any link that creates anxiety and pain. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Or, or a reminder of trauma and so we have to undo that gently right and to say okay let's think it through right let's see how do we make the connections between things that we might repress or dissociated or we i mean i i talk about it in that uh, chapter of, uh, about my own mother because of course i knew that history but i actually never thought about it and that mm-hmm. in the chapter when i i talk about a patient who comes in and tells me that she had just lost her brother, and she tells me about that loss, and I'm thinking to myself, I share in the chapter, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is one of the most painful things I've ever heard. And I am completely unaware in that moment and disconnected from the fact that 
I actually heard that story before. My mother had lost her brother. And that, right? And that my patient is in fact very much like my mother. And yeah. it's like almost like my mo- I, I am in touch with m- my mother as a child and her own experiences, but I don't remember it. And it takes me a very long time, as I describe in that chapter, to make the links in my own mind and know, oh, this is, yeah, it's, it's a horrible story and a familiar one for me. Right, right. Oh, I mean, it, it could take us on a whole like evolutionary psychology discussion of why, you know, it's, it seems to us counterintuitive that the brain right. would <laughs> repress these things when exactly what we need to do is express them and release them. But I think that might be a little bit of the disconnect between just thousands of years ago, we maybe didn't need to dwell on these things so much. We'd have a scary experience and then we'd move on. They weren't just these chronic traumas mm. after trauma after trauma. So anyway, that's yeah, a whole other yeah, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think that what we're, we're touching really is also, if we're talking about survival, uh, that going towards pain is, is almost counterintuitive. Right. Right. I mean, as, as clinicians, we know that the going towards the pain uh, in a very um, monitored way and with support and, and slowly and unpacking it and processing it is the healing itself. It's the mm-hmm. process of healing. Mm-hmm. But, our, but our mind resists to do that because, because it's almost like, you know, going, to, going towards the, that thing that hurts you or your parents and grandparents, it's, it's almost, right, it doesn't make sense, right? Why yes. would I do that? It's like my mother would say to you, why is that good? Right, <laughs> right. What, what do you mean by that? Why would why? I think about and that? What if, yeah, why would I think about that? It, 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 it causes me pain. Why would I think about it? Or, or what if, if I touch it, what if, it might get stuck, and I will mm-hmm. never be able to forget it again? And, and mm-hmm. in what way that is helpful, right? Yes. So we are against those survival mechanisms, and and our in the book I really talk about our defense mechanism, that is there to protect us. I completely respect defenses. I feel like there is a reason why they're there. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand them and see which defenses are still helpful and which are actually not helpful anymore and 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 make us, you know, stuck in some ways. Right, right. And th- and sometimes sometimes those defenses were necessary and were helpful. Yeah. But now as autonomous adults, as people who, you know, when we're children, we're, we don't have a lot of autonomy. We're very right. dependent. Now as adults, being able to let that subconscious mind know, as a child, this may have been the only defense mechanism I had. Maybe it was dissociation. Right. Maybe it was a fight response. But being able to let that subconscious know, oh, I can expand my responses i can expand my defenses into other things that are less limiting to me now right it's exactly that it is about choices and i think what you're saying is that as children we're dependent and we have limited choices right i mean part of the great thing about being a grown-up is that potentially you have more choices right Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you could if you don't like a movie you can leave you know, right. <laughs> you don't have to stay. As a child, you have to stay. You can't just say, ah, I don't like it, I'm leaving, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't like a relationship, you could actually work on it and, and you have the option to separate 
As a child, you don't have that option. And so I think our defenses are still in some ways uh, belong to the children we used to be that didn't have options. Mm-hmm. And we, and as, as you said, right, having more options of reactions, we, we don't have to do only the things we did as children. We, we have more options. And mm-hmm. we need to figure out how to, what are the options that will help yeah. us. Yes, I love that. Okay, I know we're running out of time and I have so many questions I want to <laughs> ask. <you. laughs> so, okay, the first one I want to start with is, I'm really curious if you have noticed a pattern between firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, and in terms of emotional inheritance. Again, this is very... Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> there, may not, there may not be anything, but I just had to ask this because... I'm wondering, yeah, if you've noticed any. Did you notice? Pattern. Is this, are you asking it because you have a, a thought about that? I Sammy, share with me. I know, well, I notice trends in my own family, and uh-huh. I don't want to um, just to protect the people in my family. I don't want to share their stories, but it does feel to me, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that firstborns inherit like a big chunk yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why and again that could just like that's very anecdotal I I don't I don't work with thousands and thousands of people yeah yeah but that just you know it is I think it is known that older the the right the older one gets the most projection the older one gets the most response feels the most responsibility usually right Mm -hmm. there are Again, it's not always like that, but many times. And it depends how long the older is the oldest, right? Mm-hmm. It depends when the second one comes. Sometimes it's the youngest, you know. Okay. Which okay. brings us to, to, uh, to thoughts about the identified patient that I, I focus on uh, in the book. You know, the identified patient is the one who seems like the sick member of the family. And, right. and those, usually children, carry and express the problems of the whole family as a unit. And if you think about it, it's related to emotional inheritance, right? Mm. Because most families have at least one member, but usually one member who unconsciously is assigned to carry the symptoms. And that is the family member who usually we see, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Comes to therapy. Mm -hmm. And and the family projects all the pathology on Uh that member of the family. And again, I don't know if it's usually the oldest a child many times the oldest kids are the ones that carry something for the family but not always right mm-hmm. and it's usually one of the children and but sometimes it's one of the parents and you know within my own family there's three of us biologically we've all for sure inherited uh-huh. shit <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. but it, yeah it's just i just yeah. was curious to see yeah. but there was also something there were two things ideally by the way we share it you share it it's like you know in, in families where there's more flexibility uh, there are times when this child is the identified patients and then the other child and then right we we never want to be stuck with one role so yeah. sometimes families share things and and each member of the family is, we, they switch the roles. It's like, you're the go, good boy this month. Next time it's the other child who's the good boy and you're the bad boy. And it's like, yeah. when it's stuck, we always have to ask like, oh, okay, what is, what is that about? Mm-hmm. And who's carrying what for the whole family? Right, right. Yeah. There's, okay, so last two things. For the individuals who may, for example, adopted children, people who maybe their families all passed, who can never know mm-hmm. their true history, or that person, it just doesn't feel safe to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. 
what is that what is the approach you take with that or what what might be some words of hope for those those people who maybe yeah. suspect that there's some inherited trauma but don't feel that they have access to get any clear data on it yeah yeah do you, we have to know yeah you know what i think is what we said before uh, first of all, we know, even if you do, we don't know, and we don't necessarily have to make up the details or know all the details. We follow the gaps in those situations, right? And what does that mean? It means we have a narrative. We have a narrative of our history. We have a narrative of our adoption. We have a narrative of our family history. And we see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense to us in that narrative. And where are the gaps? Where are the things that, that actually, you, when you tell the story to another person or to a therapist, let's say, I'm sure you know that from your experience. Somebody yeah. tells the story and they're like, oh, I guess something is <laughs> missing right. here. Right? Well, like the, the conclusion I made from that experience actually doesn't match. Right. Right. And that is in the communication. I don't need to say anything or you don't need to say anything. It is something about the, pa the patient telling their own story. Right. I had a patient in a different topic, but it's the same aha moment. Like he was saying how his father died and his mother's, his father's best, his father was sick and his father's best friend used to come over every day. And sometimes he slept over and he, and he tells me this from a perspective of a little boy that there is here is this person who's there. And then suddenly he stopped and he's like, Oh, actually, maybe my mother actually had a relationship with that person. And then when he starts putting it together, it's for the first time his adult self puts this story together and said, oh, nobody actually puts it that way. But this, my father died and my mother had a romantic relationship with his best friend even before he died. And then, could he, so these things are, they're not secrets. He kind of, it was there, but it was never talked about. Mm -hmm. And nobody will ever tell him that that's what happened. But I mm -hmm. think that in telling the story, we often notice, uh, the patient notice and we notice, right? I would ask, so what happened to your, right? The patient tells me a story and I said, but wait a second, there are a few years that are missing in your story. What, what happened from before you were three and six, between three and six years old? And the patient said, oh, my father left and uh, yeah, left and then he came back. For mm. He was away for three years. And you see the gaps are so meaningful. So much information is in the gap, hmm. in the omission. Uh-huh. Okay, so this was a topic that came up in your interview with Glennon and mm -hmm. Abby and Amanda, beautiful, beautiful women. I love their show. <laughs> I love Glennon. And she was like, She's if, amazing. We don't share it, if we don't <laughs> share it, we're screwed. If we share yeah. it with our kids, right. we're screwed. And, right. and you had such a beautiful response, which is, we, especially when children are involved, we do our processing with a professional and then we can share it from a place of this has been processed. We don't want to process our trauma through our children. And that for me was just the nail on the head. I think that is such a good takeaway message of we don't need to hold it in. We can share. Right. And in fact, we can even share with our children and that might even be beneficial, but not as like a sounding board. Right, right. Because I think that many, many times when people ask, do we share or not? Uh, it, there is a little bit of binary in that, right? It's either it's a secret or we go to our children, throw up on them, you know, it's like, oh, I need to tell you because I don't want to have a secret, blah, 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 blah. And I think that what we want to do is process, 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 and then have something 
that is more regulated mm-hmm. because the problem with, especially with trauma, is that it's a very dysregulating experience. It's always too much, mm-hmm. right? And so the enactment and the reliving of it would be that too, would be mm-hmm. too much. Uh, and regulation is our challenge. So how do we regulate these very intense, uh, you know, I'll call it secrets, as parents even. And I think the answer is that we try to regulate our own emotions through processing. Yeah. And it seems to me like for the adult who doesn't do the intentional processing with the professional within themselves, mm-hmm. they're going to be unconsciously processing it yeah. with their kids and projecting it and all these different things. So in a way, and we I think we've sort of said this is in a way it's going to come out. Right. Whether whether it's explicitly said or not. So might as well go do that intentional processing so that we're not unconsciously or consciously communicating these traumas and passing them on. Right. And doing them with a therapist or in a group or with a community, right, of grown ups. That's something that can hold it with you. Someone and right and, and frame that can mm-hmm. hold it with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, the message is just, even if you feel like you already have passed things on to your children, look at our tools. We have so many tools now. So if you do feel like things have been passed on, it's never too late to make tomorrow a better day, to be a little bit more healed tomorrow. It's never too late to introduce these tools to yourself, to your children. And for me, that's really the hopeful side of it. I think that is true. And I I just want to, I think it's absolutely true. And I want to just add something small but meaningful is that um, emotional inheritance is inevitable. So the fantasy that we will be able to not transmit anything, that that is not realistic, right? We will always <laughs> transmit something. It's like when people talk to me about secrets and they're like, we are going to discover all the new, all the old secrets of our family, but we produce new secrets as parents. Right. right? right, right. So <laughs> there is an ongoing process there that is about also accepting that to some degree we will, our, our children will inherit our own experiences and that is okay and we will try to process those things as much as we can right and then give them the tools yeah to and help to yeah. process their stuff exactly basically. exactly yeah. and give them the tools to be able to process what you know, what they get from us mm-hmm. oh well dr atlas i feel like i could talk to you <laughs> all day long this has been so special for me so so enjoyable and i just cannot wait for my audience to be able to learn from you and of course get your book because i mean i I recommend it to every client who comes in practically but every chapter is really following a specific patient and their story and i think that is so helpful to see these examples because that's what makes it click in people's mind if whoa yeah something like that similar is going on for me or i see that happening over there so it's just phenomenal i can't praise it enough thank you so 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 much and this was such a pleasure for me it was really really special thank you i'm so glad 